Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. So glad you're joining us and giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So we try to do what we always do here on Herd Tell. We're going to turn down the noise of the news cycle, talk about some things that matter that sometimes get lost, get you good information so that we can better discern the times we live in. Going to have a little bit different show. We're going to take a chunk of time today and go down south to South America. One thing we always try to do on our program, we try to have a little bit of a global perspective so that we don't get tunnel vision into just what's going on in the American news media. We're going to go down south. There was a congressional delegation led by AOC and others that went down there. We're going to use that as an excuse to check in with our friend Gabrielle Salazar-Singh returning to the program. we going to talk a couple countries down there, Colombia, Chile, Ecuador, and of course Brazil. Uh, things that you've probably seen in the headlines bumping around, especially the situation in Ecuador. We covered it a few weeks ago. Things you need to know about what's going on down south, a little global perspective with him. Uh, also, Natalie Vaught is on the program today. Going to talk a little bit about something. We've been talking about college admissions, college, uh, the student loan debt problem, things like this. One of the things that came out of the college admission debate now that the affirmative action decision came down from the Supreme Court is legacy admissions. We're going to talk about legacy admissions a little bit today as well. We're going to end on a good note. Great story uh, sent in by one of you, the listeners. Always appreciate when you all do that. Uh, Great story about a dog who escaped the animal shelter and went to the nursing home. He kept doing it. So finally, the nursing home just adopted. We'll talk about that at the end of the day. Uh, But let's start right here. We're in what I like to call the silly season of the GOP primary. And what I mean by that is we've had the first debate. Trump didn't participate. So, you know, you can count it or not count it. But really, until you get into October, November, December of this year and get really geared up for the early primary states, there's not a lot going on. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of campaigning. But there's not a lot of substantial stuff going on. Now we get to the next few debates and they start winnowing the field down. That may change a little bit. The state of play in the GOP primary has been pretty steady. Donald Trump's winning by a lot, not a little, a lot. He's way ahead. He's further ahead than he was in 2016. He's really doing well, all things considered, like having four indictments, maybe a fifth. We'll see what happens out in Arizona coming up. All the trials, all the delay, all the fatigue with Trump, he's lapping the field still. The other thing that hadn't changed is President Joe Biden. His approval ratings aren't great. They bump around in the low 40s. Sometimes they dip into the 30s. Sometimes they dip up into the high 40s. But basically, since the Afghanistan pullout where they had a pretty big drop, they've stayed pretty low. They're just bumping around, not really moving around. He's not really doing a lot. Congress isn't going to pass a whole lot. In fact, we're probably going to have a government shutdown 
and some really ugly stuff, may even have an impeachment. Um, but President Biden's numbers are pretty static. The reason I bring that up is the new CNN poll has come out and all day long, social media, news media has just been wearing themselves out with this poll. This is what I'm talking about, activity over actual accomplishment. This poll is another example of activity. People are talking about, oh, Biden and Trump are tied nationally. Yeah, I, I think that's probably about right. I think there's some reasons for that, though, and we've talked about them on the program before. A lot of the normies that don't follow politics like you and I and listeners of the program do, I, I don't think they're really paying attention yet, so they just say things. Um, I think a lot of people who will not vote for Donald Trump and will actively vote against Donald Trump don't really believe he's going to win the GOP primary until he does. And once he does, you'll see that number change a little bit. I think some of the negative stuff on Joe Biden does hurt him. His age does hurt him. Uh, the Hunter Biden stuff does hurt him in certain circles. The problem is all the problems that Biden have are going to be cured by being opposite on the stage from Donald Trump who by all metrics is going to be worse to most voters. And Donald Trump fans will get really mad hearing that, but you can't claim Biden's corrupt and then put Donald Trump against him, who is by any measure corrupt. They're both pretty close to the same age. So the age thing gets negated. This is just part of the noise we talk about turning down. On this poll, a lot of people are talking about the fact that in the CNN poll, Nikki Haley has jumped above Ron DeSantis into second place in the GOP primary, 14% to 11%, and Mike Pence has moved up into that 11% area. Wow. Here's some more noise that we need to turn down with this silly season. These aren't people leaving Donald Trump and going to these candidates. These are candidates that are non-Donald Trump voters that are just shuffling amongst themselves trying to find the non-Donald Trump candidate. You know how we know this? We've seen it before. We saw it in 2016. They're going to keep shuffling around and shuffling around and shuffling around. But all of them combined, Donald Trump's still going to lead them. Now, again, there's time. Maybe some of this trial stuff just wears people out. Maybe somehow somebody wins an Iowa or New Hampshire and there's some momentum build and Trump does something really crazy and loses the nomination. But anything more than one or two ifs isn't a plan. It's a prayer. And right now, anybody not named Donald Trump in the GOP primary is praying something happens to help them because there's nothing they can do to help themselves right now, except stay in this race and hope something happens. Ask yourself an honest question, though. Donald Trump's core support, the support he has now, because that's what he's down to. Everybody else has left. After four indictments, after January 6th, after all the insanity after all the craziness that's getting ready to come, and by the way, we're probably going to have some active trials during the primary voting come spring. You think they're going to leave now? You think the people that haven't already left Trump are going to suddenly go, nope, that's it, that's the breaking point, I'm done. I don't think so. I think short of some kind of a God-shaped event happening, Donald Trump is going to win the GOP primary, and I think he's probably going to win it pretty decisively. Remember, he didn't even win Iowa in 2016. Ted Cruz did. How'd that work out? Another shuffling of the non-Donald Trump candidates over and over and over again until Donald Trump just walked away with it and won. This is the silly season. We're going to have polls like this periodically come out. We're going to have more talk of this when we have the next debate. We'll see if Donald Trump participates or not. If he keeps ignoring it, it's probably going to be more of the same. If he shows up, I'm not sure anybody can actually hurt him because this hardcore group that is behind him now, they ain't going anywhere. And I don't think you can make them go anywhere. So you don't really have a plan if you're a GOP candidate right now, except hang in there and hope Trump goes away. And that's not really a plan. That's just a prayer.
And the polling proves it. More hotel right after this. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, I'm thrilled to talk to my friend. It has been way too long. I told him it had been too long, and he gave me the day and the date. Now I feel even worse about it. So I'm sorry, buddy, but I'm glad to have you back. Uh, our good friend Gabriel Salazar is saying, how are you, sir? Thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, I was one time before. It was April of last year. But see, I'm so very excited you, to see you just go and call me out like that. But no, we're going <laughs> to keep you on the regular rotation. You're good people. I appreciate you. All right, my friend, one thing we've done with you and you've been on the program before uh, you hobla. I do not. You keep track of things that are going on that sometimes miss our viewpoint, because let's be honest, the American media is pretty American centric and we take about two or three lanes and neglect a lot of things. But there's been a lot of stuff going on in the Spanish speaking world, Latin America, South America. We want to cover a couple of them. Let's start with some crossover, though. Um, very interesting topic. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, the um, Democratic representative from up in New York City, squad member famously known as. She went with a delegation into South America. They went to, met with several leaders of Latin America. They met with leaders out of Brazil, Chile, Colombia, um, countries that are nominally allies that we have pretty good relations with. It was really interesting. This didn't get a lot of coverage here. Of course, there's a lot of the Trump stuff kind of buried it. But it got covered two different ways. The progressive folks really, really hammered this as a great thing. Right-wing media, which, of course, obsesses over AOC, they just, well, she went on a socialist tour. I assume the truth is probably somewhere in the middle a little bit. But what was this actual trip from the South American point of view? Because Brazil is a major country and a major ally. Chile is a country kind of in transition, but long been an ally. Colombia is a country with a lot of issues bubbling, but seems to be kind of weathering the storm. But they do have some crises. These are important countries, important allies. And this is a member of our government going down there. What's the truth of this? What was this trip really like? So it's interesting you say that it wasn't really covered in American media because it wasn't covered in Latin media as well. It was a very... It, it was a topic that was buried underneath other news. Um, I believe even the Trump, the whole ordeal with Mr. Donald Trump is a bigger news uh, here in, in Latin America than it was the, the visit, than the visit of AOC was for us. Um, as you mentioned, she visited Brazil, Colombia, Chile, and these three countries have a very interesting common ground. They, the three of them, have are, are led their presidents are are recently elected and they are part of a pink wave that recently shook the region 
And what do you mean by pink wave? Break that break that down for folks a little bit because we 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 obsess a little bit about red wave and blue wave here, which is Republican Democrat. These terms mean different things over there. They mean different things for socialist folks, free market folks. Break down what a pink wave is and how that's used down there because it is a little bit different. Yeah. So perhaps we could dive into the the context of what each leader represents and why they are part of this pink wave. Starting with Brazil, uh, Lula da Silva, the Brazilian president, um, is the embodiment of what Ortega y Gasset, Spanish author Ortega y Gasset once said, that I am me and my circumstances, and if I don't save them, I don't save myself. Uh, this essentially uh, represents, or, or is the, the or Lula is the embodiment of this phrase, because once you get to see his life, his biography, you start to understand why he was swayed by left-wing politics. He was uninterested in, in politics when young. He didn't get involved into it until he was a part of a workers' union. His brother was a communist. He lost his finger in a work accident when he was a, a blue-collar worker. And so he got introduced into politics through this left-wing influence. Um, personally, I am no fan of Lula. Um, when he was president, there was prosperity in the country. But once his vice president took over, she succeeded him directly. Um, the country was in, in a financial, in a tricky financial financial situation. It's very funny to me that, um, or very interesting, that once the delegation got there to Brazil, Lula da Silva didn't make uh, time to meet with them. He was very uninterested. It's very surprising from one part because I couldn't imagine a president sitting down and thinking, I'm not going to receive them. This had to be a deliberate choice. It's a very, they are very prominent members of Congress in, the, in perhaps the country that has the most influence, not only in the world, but a special influence in Latin America. But I was also very unsurprised because Lula da Silva in itself, in himself, is a very is a is a person that only critiques anti-democratic practices when it's others that are partaking in it. For example, he was elected in the second round of Brazilian uh, elections in the runoff against pre incumbent President Bolsonaro. He attacked his attacks against democracy. Bolsonaro was a very authoritarian figure. We know that. He was on the right side of the spectrum. But once in power, he calls Maduro or says that what Maduro, the critiques against Maduro and his practices against human rights are just a constructive narrative by the press, which we know isn't true. Maduro is a genocidal dictator and by all accounts shouldn't be defended by anyone that, that likes democracy. And of course, in the midst of the Brazil stuff, it's interesting you bring up Bolisario. There was the changeover that brought Luna back to power. Um, it does seem like it's settled down a little bit in the grand scheme of things. But just before we get into the AOC visit, though, is Brazil stable now? They're still having a little bit of economic trouble. They still haven't really figured out. There's always been the inner Amazon versus the other parts of the country. That dynamic's always there. But is it a little more stable now, even with Luna and whatever you think of his politics? Has it at least settled down a little bit? Look, Bolsonaro was a mess. No matter what part of the spectrum you're from, you have to recognize that Bolsonaro was a bad leader. He didn't know how to manage the COVID pandemic. 
he didn't um he, he once in power and, and when he was a candidate he attacked my minorities vehemently african or people of african uh, descent women um he was he wasn't generous at all he said some pretty hostile stuff once in power the rhetoric didn't change uh, when he was during during the elections as incumbent president he he regularly regularly threatened to alter the democratic process such as involving the military which of course is uh, one of the worst things you can do if you're an incumbent president facing re-election. When Lula da Silva uh, took power, Bolsonaro had lost. There was an attempt by some of his followers to replicate what uh, what happened in the United States in January 6 of 2021. Exactly one year later, in January 8 of 2022, uh, the what most of his followers were, sorry, not most of his followers, some of his followers we're attempting to replicate the same, same thing, which paints a, a, a worrying panorama for what democracy means in Brazil. Um, polarization is definitely an issue that has been, has been stabilized a little bit. We know that in 2019, there was a poll that said that people in Brazil uh, had lost or were more indifferent towards democracy than they were before. It stabilized a little bit, but Bolsonaro is touting the idea of running again for president in the next elections, which I believe will, will polarize the country again. She, part of this trip was also Chile while the AOC delegation was there and there was others there. Um, but kind of an interesting tidbit of history that probably most people didn't know. And honestly, I was a little aware of it, but I had to go look it up. She started to call for clarity on the 1970s revolution and the coup in Chile, which is one of the recent history important events in that country. Was the U.S. involved? Look, we know the U.S. and the CIA and all that. There's a lot of conspiracy theories, but we did have heavy involvement in South America for decades and decades for a lot of reasons. Not only anti-communist stuff, we also know drug interdiction stuff. We'll get to Ecuador in a minute. That's how we got involved there. Does this stuff matter to people in like Chile? Is there a relationship with the U.S. and Chile that needs to be repaired or is this just something that kind of got thrown out of the playbook of, oh, this is something the Americans did that wasn't good in the past? Look, Chile is a country that during the last elections and for most of its history, even the democratic part of its history, has been haunted by the ghost of the Pinochet dictatorship. The country was polarized during the last elections. The runoff was between Gabriel Boric, Boric and Jose Antonio Cast, the latter represented a new left wing in the country, and the for uh, sorry the former represented uh, a new era of left wing in the country. He was a young leader. He's 37 years old now. Uh, he was very inexperienced to have the to hold the office of the presidency in Chile. 
His only experience was being president of the student government at his university and then being a senator for a little while, which to me isn't very much to or, or, or experience that that justifies him being in the presidency. Of course, people wanted a new face and they were uh, they were worried by the other candidate, Jose Antonio Cast, who represented a much more traditional view of the country. He was a conservative, but he was also a very polemic candidate. He wasn't a Trumpian-like candidate, like some people portray him. He had a more gentle demeanor. He spoke more clearly and vehemently. But some of his remarks were what made him a very worrying candidate for democracy. He once said in a radio interview that if Pinochet was alive, that he would vote, that Pinochet would vote for him, which of course, I don't think it's a very smart thing to say if you want people to know that democratic institutions will be safe under you. His inexperience, Boric's inexperience, once in power, uh, has translated into a grand incompetence to be able to do the things he wanted to do. For example, most of his agenda uh, was, was dependent on a fiscal reform that he he needed it to pass so that he could un, so he could carry most of his agenda and he didn't get enough votes and it wasn't because of the opposition it was mostly because some of the leaders uh, or the or the votes he needed didn't weren't even present that day to vote for for the fiscal reform in congress which of course is a very rookie mistake yeah and then the other country they went to uh colombia it's interesting, just two years ago during the COVID lockdown, there was a really bad crackdown by the government in that country. AOC, along with just about everybody else, condemned that. Now they went down there. As recently as last week, there was a hostage situation where police and oil field workers were taken. There's still protest problems in Colombia. What's going on in Colombia that folks need to pay attention to in the headlines? Because again, here's a country, COVID was an issue, but it just revealed issues that was already there. And it seems like they still haven't quite got a handle on some of the things. What's going on in Colombia that we need to know about? Yes. And I apologize. I, I'm now realizing that the last question you asked me, I didn't answer you completely. So I'll try to answer both of them at the No, uh, you're right fine. Now. Uh, you know, long before September 11 in, of 2001, there was September 11 of 1973 in Chile. It was when, when democratically elected Marxist president Salvador Allende was faced a coup d'etat by Augusto Pinochet. Now, Salvador Allende, despite being democratically elected, was pushing towards something that looked or resembled, or, or, or now when we look at it in, in a 2020 hindsight, we can start to see some patterns that evidence that perhaps he was looking to install a, a dictatorship himself. You know, he gave more power to the military. He did other, other actions that were, and private records have shown that, that, that by all intentions, it seemed that Salvador Allende was gonna be a dictator himself. And alarmed by that, the military made a coup d'etat against him. And then came another dictator, Augusto Pinochet, both from very different part of the spectrums, of course, Augusto Pinochet was a, a free market dictator. 
uh, advised by the Chicago boys themselves, Milton Friedman, um, was one of the advisors involved in, in Augusto Pinochet's economic reforms. Salvador Allende, on the other hand, was the first democratically elected Marxist leader, perhaps of the world. So when that happened, Augusto Pinochet took power. He remained until the 1990s. Uh, there was economic reforms that have shaped the country up until now. But um, while some look towards the past with nostalgia for what was the economic reforms that essentially made Chile the, 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 the most developed country, perhaps the most developed country in Latin America, others recognize that he was a threat to democracy by all accounts, not a threat. He killed democracy in Chile. He, he killed people who were shown to be uh, dissidents against the government. You know, um, free speech was heavily restricted. So Augusto Pinochet nor Salvador Allende, uh, they are very different figures who are shaping Chilean politics until now. You ask one portion of the country, the one more sympathetic to a left wing, and what Salvador Allende represented, perhaps they even feel um, sympathy towards him and the death that was caused by his death that was caused by the Cureta. Uh, and they will say that that releasing the records is a very important subject. It's for democracy in itself. You ask the people who are more sympathetic to Augusto Pinochet, and they will say that, that no, that it's not a necessary issue. Now, moving on to Colombia, you've mentioned that it has been a Colombia has faced a, a, a rocky years. You know, it's a country that has been shaped by, by what, what, what was essentially a civil war. Guerrilla warfare was big in the country. And President Duque, pardon, sorry, uh, President Petro uh, was, um, was a guerrilla fighter himself. You know, that tells you a little bit or that indicates you that he isn't very respective of democratic norms. He was a guerrilla fighter involved with a left-wing movement. Um, us in Costa Rica know through our very nice experience without a military that war isn't the way, that there's a peaceful th uh, process to be respected, and above all, that democracy is a value to be upheld. Um, once into power, Petro hasn't respected democracy. He has attacked parts of the civ of civil society that disagree with him. Um, businesses, entrepreneurs, Congress, even the fiscal general have been attacked by him. The fiscal, the fiscal general, the general fiscal of the country even called um, Petro a dictator, because Petro on Twitter once said that since he is president of the country. He's also the boss of the fiscal general. Those of us who know how understand, uh, democratic norms work know that that's a very worrying attack towards democracy in itself.
Gabriel Salazar Singh joining us. Um, let's go to Ecuador for a minute because we've been covering that country. Really disturbing stuff. It wasn't that long ago, within the last decade, Ecuador was kind of one of the models in South America. They had a booming tourist economy. It was a big expat destination. They, they were using the U.S. dollar, so a lot of Americans were going down there and doing business, having second homes, retirees, things like that. It's kind of all gone sideways. They've had a disastrous presidency. Then they had uh, a lot of economic problems. They had the earthquake about seven, eight years ago that did a lot of damage. Now they're having a very, very volatile election. Violence is up. The economy's down. We covered on our show the mayor of Monta, one of the coastal cities where the expats really love, was actually really murdered. And then not a couple days later or about a week later, one of the presidential candidates was murdered. Um, this is just all kinds of bad. The presidential candidate, Fernando Villavicio, or Villavicio, I'm probably saying that wrong. You'll say it better than I do. He wasn't going to win anyway, but this is somebody that was really well-known in the country. He'd been a journalist. He'd been a politician. He'd been an agitator for a lot of his causes. He'd actually left the country for several years because he'd been threatened before with death threats. He came back for this election, and then he was assassinated. Now they go, it's going to a runoff and stuff, but th this is about as unstable as a country can get without a full-blown open conflict. What's going on in Ecuador, and why should we be paying attention to it? Look, Fernando Villavicencio was a fighter towards the right cause. Being objective, uh, politics aside, I think that Fernando is a, a martyr right now for the right cause, which is democracy. Um, out of all the candidates in the race, I think that he was the one that represented democratic norms the best. Um, he was vehement when criticizing Rafael Correa. Rafael Correa, to give you some context, was president before, before Guillermo Lasso and Lenin Moreno. Lenin Moreno was Rafael Correa's president, and he shaped a lot of what perhaps he's the, 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 the person who's shaped the most out of inequalities politics over the last several years in the new millennium, Rafael Correa was, was a very controversial president because he himself didn't respect democratic norms. He eliminated the, the rights to be, or, or term limits, he eliminated them. He was a socialist leader putting taxes you know, on wealth, attacking the wealthy. Um, he was later succeeded by Lenin Moreno, who was a very disastrous president. He was the one responsible for, for the beginning of COVID-19. Vaccine rollouts weren't, weren't happening in the country. There weren't the, um, necessar necessary measures to contain the virus weren't being taken. And thus, Guillermo Lasso, the main opposition candidate, took power. Personally, I was... I had high hopes for Guillermo Lasso. Guillermo Lasso was uh, a more libertarian candidate, especially in the Ecuadorian context. He was an, an entrepreneur. Um, he was an outsider, a fresh face, but his presidency was very disastrous as well. Correa, who is in exile right now in Belgium, um, still has a very tight grip over the left wing of the country and the left wing of the country explicitly listens to what he says 
And so those who are who are very near to to Rafael Correa and their and his ideas, el Correismo, are didn't let Guillermo Lasso govern. Guillermo Lasso didn't have a, a majority in Congress, which ultimately affected him. Um, those who controlled Congress, Correa's allies, were constantly constantly trying to get him out of power. Of course, the Congress can unseat a sitting president out of power if they deem so. The votes didn't go through. But once there was a new attempt that was most that was really likely to go through and Guillermo Lasso was about to, to get out of Congress, Guillermo Lasso did a double-crossed death, which essentially means that there were going to be new elections. The Congress was going to be dissolved. There was going to be new elections for Congress, but the president had to face new elections as well. Guillermo Lasso didn't opt towards running again. Now, we get to the context of the present elections. Fernando Villavicencio was perhaps the, the, the leading candidate of, against Correismo and left-wing politics. He constantly criticized uh, Rafael Correa's ties with the narcos, with the narcotraffic in the country. And what happened was that he was killed. There were very mysterious circumstances towards his death. For example, once um, the hitman who killed Fernando was, was detained and he was in a safe place, it's supposed to be a safe place, he was killed. The hitman was killed, which sets, sets it up for, for a very interesting and mysterious and wearing panorama for the country. As I was talking with you earlier, this is not the first politician in the last couple of months that has been killed. The mayor of Manta was killed. There was a legislative candidate that was killed as well. And so the last days, perhaps even the last week uh, of the elections in which this happened, um, were, sh were shaped by the, by the assassination of Fernando. Um, he was eventually, uh, his, his, his candidacy was taken over by Chris, Christian Zurita, another, uh, another, uh, another journalist. And he ended up finishing in third place above what the polls constantly showed Fernando that said that he was in fourth place. Second place was a surprise for the, for the entire country. Novoa was elected for the, or was second place and is heading to the runoff against the main, uh, against Correa's main candidate. You add the mathematics up, and it's very likely that Novoa will end up being the next president of the country because, you know, third place was Christian Zurita, Fernando Villavicencio's replacement. His share of the voters are most likely completely apathetic towards Correa and his allies. So it will translate in a majority towards Noah. And fourth place as well, Jan Topic uh, gave his, his endorsement to, to second place Noah, which it's a very interesting scenario to be facing right now. And it's a worrying scenario. You know, it's a sad sight to see that for the votings, for the elections, Fernando Villavicencio's mother 
had to be escorted by the military. She had to be wearing a helmet and an anti-bullet proof vest. It's and she's a very brave woman. I think that Fernando gets his stuff or got his toughness from her. She was able to to give comforting words towards democracy. She said that essentially she she let the the ones responsible for killing him that she wouldn't back down her family wouldn't back down and that fernando's ideas and respect for democracy and liberty had to live on she's a very admirable woman there's no denying that even christian surita taking his 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 fernando's place in the candidacy is a very brave thing to do you know, if someone was killed and then you have to take over his place, I'm betting that not a lot of people would be able to take the, um, the responsibility. Nobody would be willing to risk uh, their life as Christian Surita did, which is very, it's a very admirable thing to do. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, Gabriel Salazar Singh joining us. 
it's interesting. You, you already referred to this interesting constitutional mechanism that got us here, the, the Muerte Cruzada, or however you say it, the mutually assured death where they dissolve the parliament, but the president has to stand for election at the same time. So this is only going to be a year and a half, and they're going to do this all over again. So whoever wins this thing, they're going to turn right around and have to do this again. Is there any hope for stability here, or is this just going to be kind of a cycle of bad in Ecuador for the foreseeable future? Look, um, Correa is, this might be some strong words, but Correa is a very despicable figure. He's in exile right now in Belgium. He's running against the law. And he's still managing politics, being a, a puppet master for left wing, the left wing in Ecuador. Because since he's facing a perilous situation, since he isn't president anymore, he doesn't care about the country going to ruin and two presidents or three presidents failing after him. This is the thing with dictators. This is a problem with dictators and populists. They thrive on their drama. They love drama because it's what feeds them and makes them such a popular figure. When they create the drama, they have a response for that drama that makes them popular against uh, the public eye. It wouldn't surprise me if for the next presidency, the one who takes over Guillermo Lasso, um, will, if he will face a, a, a difficult panorama, if Correa will end up doing the same thing, um, opposing everything he does, is, he does, um, perhaps even calling for, for the president's removal. Both of the candidates, this is, this is, uh, it's safe to say that both of the candidates right now in the runoff are ideologically similar to Correa. I mean, I don't know, perhaps if Noboa wins, the anti-Korea candidate, perhaps Rafael Correa will find an opportunity to, to, to become an ally of him and become one of his supporters if Correa thinks that under the public eye that will benefit him. And if, main, uh, and if Correismo wins once again in Ecuador, I think that we can expect, of course, Correa to be quiet unless she does a bad job, because if she does a bad job and the public perception is against her, then Rafael Correa will also be the, the first one to oppose her. So it really depends on, the, on, on what happens with the presidency. Um, but it's a, a, a very worrying topic that Rafael Correa, even in exile, doesn't care about the country and the influence he has. He's using it for worse. Yeah, Gabriel Salazar Singh joining us. A lot of lessons there on why we need to be very mindful and careful of our own democratic institutions and norms here, because these are universal principles. People want power, people want to do bad things, and good people need to stop them. I appreciate your insight on this. Great to have you back. It'll be a lot sooner than last time, I promise. We won't go in a year and a half again, my friend. But until we get you back on Hertel, let folks know where they can follow you and what you got going on until we get you back again, my friend. They can f find me on Twitter at Gabriel Salasing, but there's a warning. They will find a lot of soccer. Uh, <laughs> so if you don't like soccer, uh, then perhaps following me might not be the best choice. But I will have a, I will be voicing my opinion on politics. Look, 
I, I'm not very interested in in working in politics in the in the future, not even the near future. But I think that it's a responsibility for all of us to speak up for what we think is right. And if I can speak up for democracy, not in not only in my country, which I I'm very grateful to be born in Costa Rica and have a enormous and and very beautiful democratic system, but in the region as well, even the world, then I will do so because I think that everyone has the rights to be free. Yep. Um, Costa Rica is a wonderful country. One of my buddies from high school that I grew up with since sixth grade, he lives in Costa Rica, married a Costa Rica girl. So it's a wonderful country that people keep telling me I need to go visit. I would love to get it in one of these times. We'll do some food sometime. Y'all don't have waffle houses there, though. We'll have to work that out. Uh, Gabriel Salazar Singh, we will have you back soon, my friend. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Yes, sir. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, new face on the program. Happy to have her here. We're going to talk a little bit about higher ed, the highs and lows of it, or more specifically, how can low people get into the higher education, how the higher education folks sometimes don't want those folks in there. Natalie Vaught with us. How are you, ma'am? Great to see you. I'm good. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm here in Switzerland, and I'm good. Yeah, it's always better in Switzerland if anybody's never been there. It's exact. You know, some places it don't look like the picture. No, it looks exactly like the picture. Switzerland's an amazing place. Uh, you were writing in Daily Caller about legacy. I found this interesting because I think we're actually gaining some ground here. Um, when we did the last round of student loan debt things, and then we saw the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action, you know, it was the usual suspect, but I saw a lot of people in that debate, bipartisan, across the spectrum, people on all sides going, Okay, but what are we going to do about legacy admissions? I, I feel like we're maybe gaining a little ground here on it's it's not just student debt and it's not just affirmative action. A lot of people are starting to look at these legacy admissions as a problem, and I think it's getting louder. I kind of took a little heart from that. Did you? Yeah, so affirmative action has always been center stage, but now with the Supreme Court's ruling on June 29th, that was basically out of the picture. So people started thinking, okay, what's the next unjust uh, part of the college admissions process? And naturally, uh, you think of legacy admissions. Yeah. And the thing about it is, is, and the, just to back up for a second, what the Supreme Court ruled on that Harvard was doing, and UNC, UNC uh, North Carolina was also mentioned in there, but really Harvard, what Harvard was doing was so different than what almost anybody else was doing. It was uniquely bad. And you touch on it in your piece, prestigious private schools, you know, the Dukes, the Harvards, the Dartmouths, the Ivy Leagues. This is They don't do this like a regular, even a really high-end private school or even a state school. They're doing this very, very differently. Give me the nomenclature for how the legacy admissions are working for these elite schools and why it seems like it's so unfair. Because what's happening is... It's compressing how many other people can get in because they're basically saying we have to let this group of in because of X, Y, and Z reasons. Yeah. 
So Ivy Plus colleges are more than twice as likely to admit a student from a high-income family compared to a lower middle-income background with the same academic credentials, same SAT, ACT scores. And when there are legacy admits, it's five times as much. So essentially the legacy admissions, it's a big part of the, the Ivy Plus institutions. And their reasoning is always, oh, we need the funding. Um, the alumni network gives us this funding that we wouldn't have otherwise. But then when you look at public universities, uh, that's, not, that's not the case. They don't do it to that extent. So it's, it's really a, a problem of the Ivy Plus institutions. Yeah, Natalie, you just touched on it. There's just no way to talk about higher ed right now than the funding and for the what you're calling the Ivy Pluses, you know, the Harvards, the MITs, the real exclusive schools here. The problem they've got is with the legacy admissions is they've got to keep their alumni base happy because that's one of their biggest donor bases. That's where they're getting that. You know, we talk about, you know, Harvard having a, an endowment the size of a small country's GDP and joke about it a little bit. That's how they get it, though influencers and i'm and you know in and of itself probably nothing wrong with it but the problem is that's squishing you know it's like a compression effect right it's taking when you have 70 some percent of your students in as legacies there's just not enough room for everybody else how do we actually get the ivy pluses because they've got a lot of power they got a lot of stroke i don't know that externally you're going to be able to pressure them to do anything about this are you well i think you can i mean it's clear with this affirmative action decision that even though they're private institutions that the government had a say. So now they, I mean, they allowed affirmative action, now they've ended it. So in the case of legacy admits, uh, legacy schools, uh, I think they do have a right to intervene here specifically, and especially because they, a lot of these schools are funded, or at least partly funded by taxpayer money. So Harvard in 2021, they had a $625 million uh, federal budget. And a lot of these schools, they get money from taxpayers. So because of this, I think the government has a right to intervene and they can. Natalie, but join us. Tell us some of those ways they intervene. Um, you talk in your piece a couple of different of their federal funding. You talk about a couple of different ways. There's also voting with your feet. We've seen a lot of state schools and even flagship universities are going to really struggle. There's this there's a system wide thing going on now where enrollment's dropping across the board for everybody. Now the Ivies are a little bit different. But isn't that going to eventually catch up to them, too? Can it be a combination of some of the government funding stuff you're talking about? Can it be a combination of some of the laws getting kind of nipped at maybe at the Supreme Court level? But at some point, they're going to have the same enrollment problems everybody else is going to have, aren't they? Yeah, but that's something. I mean, I'm wondering how the public universities do it then. Why why aren't they so heavily reliant on how come they can do it and these schools are a lot more well-known. I mean, I went to the University of Florida and they don't seem to have these problems. I mean, they're still an alumni network. They they asked me to donate. I've gotten emails like that, but there was no, it wasn't to this extent. So I'm wondering if they, if the smaller guys can do it, why can't they? Yeah, Natalie Boyd joining us. I, I don't see, I don't like using words like elite a lot because we beat it to death. So it doesn't mean anything anymore. And we beat to death words like privilege. But when it comes to these Ivy Leagues and the Ivy League Pluses, like you talk about, it really is an elite and a privileged problem. 
how do we get that conversation back? Because now we need those terms. Those terms have been abused so much they don't mean anything anymore. We need to get those terms back to explain how this is working, though, isn't it? Because this really is, you talk about it in your piece, you know, you're talking about the 1% of the 1% a lot of the cases here. You're talking about, you know, 103 students on the 1% making a huge difference. How do we get that part of the conversation back from just being a buzzword? Right. I think now is the time to talk about it uh, following this affirmative action decision. What's the next thing we need to tackle in the college admissions process? I mean, in the Supreme Court for a decade, each of the nine seats on the Supreme Court was filled by someone who graduated from the Ivy League. So for the exception of two years ago when Amy Coney Barrett was sworn in, she was from the University of Notre Dame. And in the study that the that was released July 24th by Opportunity Insights, they say that less than 1% of Americans attend the 12 colleges, but they account for 15% of those in the top 0.1% of the income distribution, a quarter of U.S. senators, half of all Rhodes Scholars, and three-fourths of the Supreme Court justices appointed in the last century. So I think if more people start talking about it and like with affirmative action, see how unfair it is, how it's not based on our meritocratic principles. I think we just, people, everyone needs to to talk about it and make sure that uh, the public debate is stirring. Yeah, Natalie, joining us, you, you put it in an interesting way. I think this is a good term. I'm probably going to steal it. Rewarding intergenerational privilege. Mm-hmm. Um how do we, when we go to look at this in the future, because obviously most people don't have any control over the Ivy Leagues or anything else, but like I, I really do think the Ivy Leagues are going to fall under the same pressure the rest of higher ed is. It's just going to be a little slower because they're kind of built in. And there's all those that you just mentioned, you know, presidents, senators, congressmen, Supreme Court. There's a lot of power there. Please don't go to the sky. What When we look at the news media coming up, as all of higher education is starting to have a crisis point here, this is going to continue to be a problem. Yeah. So when we're just watching the regular news, when some what's going to pop up in a headline or in a story or something like that in the news that would make people remember, oh, this is what's legacy emissions is part of this problem, or this is part of the Ivy League Plus's problems. Yeah. This is something like privilege for the privileged. Yeah. Uh, being rich is its own qualification. There's the admissions industrial complex. Uh, rewarding those that are already that already had so many resources so all these key words are gonna get people to pay attention to this issue i don't think they're ever going to stop naming buildings for the people that want to get their kids into school uh which is kind of the old joke but there's a lot of pressure on the stuff natalie boy so great to talk to you about this uh the full pieces in town hall we're gonna link the whole thing she's got some links in there too make sure you click those links gives good background information let folks know where they can keep up with you and follow you and see what you're up to until we get you back on the program again. Thank you so much for hosting me. It was great to talk to you. In So I regularly publish for C3, and I would say they should check out my – I'm still working on my Twitter, uh, but they should check out my, my LinkedIn page, and I'm currently building a website right now. But on C3, I have a lot of pieces there. Great. We'll make sure to link to all those. We'll get you back to talk about them when you do the next batch of writing. Natalie Voigt, thank you so much for the time today, ma'am. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am.
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Let's end on a good note. This one's sent in by uh, our friend and a Hertel Substack subscriber, Missy Howe. Uh, thank you so much for sharing this one to us. Dog kept escaping from shelter to sleep in the nursing home, so the staff just adopted him. I love these stories. Um, Scout was staying at the Atrium County Animal Shelter in Bel Air, Michigan, when he started sneaking out to the Meadowbrook Medical Care Facility in the middle of the night. It's right across the street. Claimed the chain link kennel, Heather Belknap, the shelter director, explained. Scout, who's a German shepherd, weighs about 650 pounds. There's a six-foot solid vinyl fence around the dog kennel, but somehow it kept getting over it. Staff could tell that Scout, a stray mutt that they rescued and named, was abused. His jaw had pellets in it, probably from a BB gun. He displayed older traits of missing treated animals and had injuries. He was easily excitable and had a fear of strangers. Somebody had obviously abused him, Belknap said. We ended up in the shelter. He'd ended up in the right place. At least he was cared for and fed. Scout's first nursing home break-in was back in 2017. He leapt over two fences and crossed the highway and then sauntered into the nursing home through the automatic revolving door, parked himself on a couch. Made himself comfortable sleeping on the sofa until a stunned nurse spotted him and called the sheriff in a panic. The dog who was brought back to the shelter repeated this same sequence of events on three separate nights in the span of only a few days, slipping out of the shelter in various ways and hopping onto the brown couch in the lobby. Seemed pretty relentless in his pursuit to be here, said Stephanie Easley, the clinic care coordinator at Meadowbrook Medical Facility. He had found his home. Following the third uninvited visit, staff member took Scout home with her, but he wasn't a good fit with her other dogs, so not wanting to send him back to the shelter, they decided to collectively adopt him and keep him there. He's ours. He chose us in the beginning, said Rhonda Tomzak, an administrative assistant at the facility. To this day, no one knows why Scout was so drawn to the nursing home. We just knew he belonged here, said Ensley, adding the staff checked with the residents for allergy and ensured everyone was comfortable with having him around in the common areas. The staff at Meadowbrook agreed to share the responsibilities, whose age is not known for Scout, though his vet suspects he's somewhere between 10 and 12 years old. The care facility is divided into several separate units, each with about 20 residents, most of whom are seniors with health issues. So since 2017, Scout has been living full-time as a resident pet at the place. While Scout has run off the place and regularly visits other parts of the building, he definitely knows where his unit's home is. He doesn't try to sneak out. He feels the most comfortable in the Glacier Hill unit. The facility's household coordinator said for the past six years, Martinek has Scout's primary caregiver. She ensures the nursing home is always well stocked with his kibble and takes him to his vet's appointment. If I'm here, he follows me wherever I go. There's a great staff picture, by the way, uh, along with other photos in this piece at the Washington Post. We'll link to all of it. He has his own bed in the shared living room of Glacier Hill, though he often spends his nights curled up next to residents, especially those who offer him enough treats or beg him or ask that they could just simply use some extra comfort. He senses that, he says. It's really amazing. He's protective of everybody. He knows when somebody's sicker than normal or needs some extra attention. But on occasion, Scout demands protection for himself. During a thunderstorm, he will always find some resident that will let him in their room to cuddle thinking they will keep him safe. The staff at the nursing home adore Scout, but the residents are especially pleased to have a pup around. They voted him in the monthly council meeting to crown Scout the February resident of the MOOF. Resident of the month, not MOOF. That's probably how Scout says it. Um, having a resident pet is not what you'd expect to see in a nursing home, but he can gauge if a resident is disinterested and wants space and generally does really well respecting boundaries. Shirley Sawyer, 82, has lived at Glacier Hill for about a year on that unit. Says he's the perfect dog. You can pet him. You can talk to him. He comes in and lays down with you. Mostly, he just wants to be with you. And most importantly, she says, he doesn't do a lot of barking. It's very nice to have a dog, Sawyer says. 
it makes it more like home. There's more to this piece. There's lots of great pictures. You can see Scout in action and inaction laying on his beloved brown couch. Love stories like this. Appreciate Missy sending that in. Thank you so much. That just means we read your emails, your tweets, your feedback on the Substack. Make sure you're following all that stuff so that you too can participate in her tell. Because if you ain't listening and responding, there ain't no reason to be doing this. And you do. So we'll keep doing it. And that'll do it for Herd Tell. If you won't be like missing, contact us, show at gmail.com, herdtell.substack.com. You can not only uh, subscribe for free and get everything we do, you can also give feedback, comments, directly interact with us there. We'd love to have you. iTunes, Spotify, all the uh, podcast platforms. Make sure you're subscribing and liking there and leave comments there and leave ratings there. It's really important. It let's the platform know we're worth promoting lets us know how you're listening so we can keep getting you what you want to do the good talk segments are also on the youtube channel make sure you check that out that's just the interview portions and we always appreciate the most precious thing you have your time when you share with us so wherever you are across the street or around the world we hope you're well we hope you're well fed thanks for joining us on this hard tell and we'll see you again when we do it next time All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.